Hi, hello, bonjour, and namaste. This is Out of the Clouds, a podcast at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. And I'm your host, Anne Muletala. Today, my guest is Salman Ansari, aka The Quick Brown Fox. Salman is a self-confessed polymath as a startup founder, a CTO, a web and iOS engineer, who's now turned into a teacher, a writer, an illustrator. And he's also moonlighting occasionally as a DJ. And these are just a few of the things that occupy him. I came across him when he was spotlighted in someone else's email newsletter. And having read a piece that went, I would say, viral, although this is not my favorite word nowadays, called The Polymath Playbook, I subscribed to his newsletter in order to discover more about his writing. And perhaps three or four newsletters in, I thought, damn, I really need to talk to that guy. He sounds fantastic. And so fast forward to a few chats later, here we are. And I can't tell you how much pleasure I had to go and also dig in and discover more in order to prepare this interview. So in our conversation, we explore, of course, Salman's journey and the multiple things that make his life so rich. We talk about what it's like to write and publish every day or every week. Salman at the moment is developing a book. So we talk a lot about this and his passion for The Little Prince. And we talk about writing in community and also the power of journaling, meditation, and how to foster creativity, working towards big, great projects, and what it's like when fear or procrastination become obstacles on the way to things that are important to us. This is probably one of my favorite interviews, and it's hard to say this because I love all of my interviews, very genuinely. So without further ado, I'm gonna stop talking and give you this wonderful, lengthy and fantastic interview <laughs> with Salman Ansari. Salman, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Out of the Clouds. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Me too. So I would love to start by asking you, how are you doing today? How are things with you? Pretty good. Pretty good. It's the morning where I'm at. And usually in the mornings, I kind of do some reading outside. I've been enjoying that a lot recently. Just like sitting with some trees and reading books. It's like, even if it's 15 minutes, it's been a really fun part of my day that kind of settles me. But yeah, overall, I'm good. So I really like to ask my guests to start the interviews by telling our listeners who they are and where they're from. And I guess it's one of the ways to enter in conversation instead of talking about what we do, to talk about who we are. So Salman, who are you? That's a tricky question. There's a lot of answers to that. Yeah, I mean, I can start with kind of a high level, I guess, some of the background. I have grown up in lots of different places. I'm Indian, South Asian by, by ethnicity, but I was born and raised in the Middle East. And then I went to high school and university in Canada, studied computer science, and then kind of moved over to the States and really worked in startup world, building tech startups for a long time <laughs> and had some bumps and, and some successes there and kind of broke out a little bit after a little bit of a burnout experience. I shouldn't say a little bit. You can't really have a little bit of it, <laughs> but it was pretty intense. And, and that period really forced me to sort of reevaluate my whole life. 
So I've kind of been on this journey ever since then of trying to figure out this mix of creative projects and more fulfilling work and sort of figuring out what's the balance that really works well for me. Because there's so many different things that I'm kind of interested in. And, but at the same time, I, I do want to work on, on things to fruition too. So I would say, you know, I'm still and probably always will be in this figuring out mode, just trying to enjoy things, but also trying to, to build towards something bigger. Thank you. Now you're making me wonder, what did you want to be when you were a kid? I kind of sometimes wish I had a great memory of someone asking me that and, and having a really good answer to that. But I think that growing up actually didn't really have a very strong sense of this. And I think that that's one of the things that I try to keep in mind. So I was a very good student. I would just really study hard and, and get you know good grades. And I remember at one point, even by the time I reached high school, I realized I had been doing fairly well in these different subjects, but I had no real strong affinity for one over the other. And I wasn't kind of like, oh yeah, I really love this. And it actually terrified me because around grade nine, at least in Canada, I think they probably do this in the States and other countries too, but they start to ask you stuff like, what program are you going to be in? So if you know that now, you should start planning for that. And I was like, I have no idea. <laughs> I really had no idea. As a child of Indian parents, my dad was a doctor. My mom was a, gyne- was a gynecologist. And so there was a lot of expectation of my brother had like PhD in Congress psychology. My sister is a dentist. So there's a lot of like expectation around <laughs> going into some kind of career like that. And I ended up taking a slightly different path. But yeah, as a kid, the only thing I knew to do was just to study and and be. I didn't really have that much of a, an ambition around where I wanted to go. So I think that's a little telling, but mm. yeah. A dream somehow, somewhere, something that felt almost unattainable. I'm just wondering. Yeah, I mean, I think unattainable might be a good word because one of the things that's interesting is I do a lot of drawing now and a lot of it I've been doing for fun. And, and now it's kind of transitioning into being part of my work, but I'm, I've been doing it for fun. And sometimes I, I sort of imagine that I just started learning how to draw a few years ago. But then I remember, you know, I actually did take some art classes like early in my school days. And I used to draw these really, really cool pieces, actually, that would be quite difficult to do right now. Like I think the amount of effort and dedication that I, I put into those. but. I don't even remember thinking for a second that that could actually be something I would do. I don't even like, it wasn't even an option. It was kind of just like, here's this thing that I'm doing and it's nice, but you know, <laughs> real work is going to be, I'm either going to be a doctor or, mm. or, a, or, you know, something like that. I think that probably one thing that I did have that did end up kind of becoming an option of almost of sorts because I ended up studying computer science. But early, I always really enjoyed video games and especially, and also watching sort of animated films. And I'd always wonder how they're made. I always felt like they were really magical. I really was into computers and early on. And so that's kind of how I got this inkling to take this. It was called like an IT 
course, but it was basically about writing software. And I took this in, in grade 10, actually. And, and then it taught you a little bit about programming. They showed, I remember this, I remember there was a point where he shows you something called recursion, which is this programming technique. And I was just blown away. I thought it was literal magic. I was like, this is wizard stuff. This is so oh, cool. That's amazing. That's what I want to do. And then my whole, everything shifted around that. I took it again in 11 to 12, applied to computer science. And actually what I thought I was going to do was build games. Even in university, I took graphics, which is one of the difficult courses. There's just so many layers to, to building computer games. And I remember building this. You basically have this final project where you kind of have to put together a really complex project over a month and then somehow have it to completion. And I had decided instead of building what a lot of my friends were doing, which kind of like was like a Space Invaders clone or something straightforward like that, I decided to create a realistic simulation of a motorboat in the sea. And this is particularly complicated because a boat has to respect the laws of like water and like recreating water. You ended up using like these Perl and noise functions and all these complicated things. And I remember it was like 3 a.m. or something. And I finally got it to actually run without my input. And so I just saw this boat like kind of like floating like this. And I was like, I have created life. Like, this is amazing. Like, this is so... <laughs> You know, and I was convinced that this was the thing I wanted to do and ended up applying to this, like all these positions to just work anywhere where they make games. And I somehow got this internship in California where I worked for this company that was related to games, but I didn't really realize exactly how. I was just like, whatever, I don't care. I want to go to California. I'm going to make work on games and stuff. And the job that I worked on was inserting ads into games. <laughs> so I didn't really oh, realize no. that this was this was what the company was doing, but that was a core part of what the company was doing. And it turned out it wasn't really a company that made games, it was a game that as a company that sort of distributed them and, and inserted these things into them. And it was just like a very, very negative experience. And I felt really alienated and kind of disillusioned from that. And then I started to research more and learn like yeah, actually working at like these EA and it's not actually very fun or really that it's kind of a very difficult place to work. And coincidentally, there was two different people I met at this internship, this quote unquote dreadful internship. And one of them was a very, very, very cool business minded product guy. And another was like a technology leadership veteran. And both of them became friends of mine. And I introduced them to each other. And they ended up actually leaving that company and starting a new company. No way. And, and hired me as the first employee when I graduated. So wow. it was obviously a difficult choice because, again, parents and expectations and things like that, that I'm going to go and work for some big tech company or something like that. So, yeah, I ended up joining them and they were working on something completely different. It had nothing to do with games. It was to do with, uh, it was like a marketing-based platform, uh, social media marketing platform, which I didn't understand really at the time. I just trusted them. And I was like, they're my friends and they're really smart. And I think, I think they know what they're doing. So I'm going to follow them and grew in that role from founding engineer to engineering manager running the San Francisco office. We spent five years and then we were acquired in Oracle. That became a really big formative part of my life. But mm that's kind of the way it works sometimes. And, and then, you know, yeah. lo and behold, like five or eight years have gone by and I, I can't even remember 
you know, the original reason why I actually flew out to California has to do with games. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't regret it at all. I think it was one of the best decisions I've ever made, but it is funny how that happens sometimes where even these tiny subconscious threads, you know, are like, what was it that made me really interested to begin with versus what made me want to keep going? Cause I really do as much as I don't do as much of it now, I really do like building things and, and software in particular. So I'm glad I had that experience. Mm, I'm so grateful that you told me all about that. First of all, I need to tell you, I relate to you quite a bit to your story. My family, most people were doctors or psychiatrists or gynecologists <laughs> or professors. And I was the contrarian as my, yeah, the contra- <laughs> I discovered this word from my coach, Martha Beck, who says that some people are contrarians because mm. everything told me that I shouldn't try to pursue becoming a singer. And I went, eh, eh. <laughs> I went anyway, <laughs> but then I landed in a different career. Mm. And years later, I'm like, what am I doing here? Did I ever <laughs> want to work in fashion? <laughs> Anyways. I feel like, I don't know if this is your experience, but I feel like there's like, I, I haven't always thought of it with, with that word, but there are times where like, if I'm doing something, then I want to do it slightly differently. You know what I mean? Like, even if it's something that you're doing that lots of people are doing and you like that thing, you still want to do something that makes it unique. And half of me thinks, yeah, that's pretty universal. Like most people want to be unique and things like that. But I do sense that there's an element where you take it a little further and you're like, no, it's not even interesting unless it's differentiated in some way. Mm. I also feel like there's something there. I don't know if it's as much about contrarian, but it's about, Hey, I have this like open question Mm -hmm. about what would it be like if I were able to do this thing or, and I want to experiment. I want to know the answer to that. And I'm willing to pay the costs of, for example, being new and crappy at something like a lot of people just aren't willing to do that, especially if they've already proven themselves in another arena. Right. So I think that that's an interesting trait. I don't know if it's exactly the same trait, but I feel Mm. like there's sort of an exploratory vibe that some people have where it's just like, I don't care if worst case I do it and I don't like it. And then that's great because now I know, um, do you ever have that feeling or like sometimes I get really relieved to discover that I actually don't have interest in something? Because then it's one less thing I have to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. You know what yes, I mean? Totally. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It, I'd love to know what gave you the courage to actually not follow what was expected of you? Yeah, actually, I think that's a really good question. Because it's something that I've had to really hone, especially nowadays, especially in my day, days now where I'm breaking a lot of expectations, both of my, my own and, and others. But early in my career, especially during that period, you know, I was hesitating. I was like, I want to do the right thing. I had done all the right things. Basically, I studied hard, except for even the program I chose. Like, yeah, I, w- I was the only one who did computer science, but it's not like I was quitting school and and going to start a rock band or something. It was, it was still a very like, yeah, he's going to, you know, he's working hard and going to good school and all those types of things. And so I don't think I could have done it entirely on my own. I think that these two friends of mine 
what I loved about them, it's still, you know, they're still good friends of mine. And I continue to work with one of them as recently as a few months ago with, through part-time work, but they would kind of talk to me in a way where they understood my goals, but also shared and invited me to, to work with them. And I think, for example, if it had been a very hard sell, which I've had other people later in my life do, then you kind of understand that, you know what, that person really is just here to benefit from me working for them. And the minute that you realize that, then then you can't really trust their guidance to be fair and unbiased around your career. And I remember the conversations that they had with me where they said, look, like, you can always work for the big companies later, but we're doing this thing now and these things don't come along all the time. And, you know, knowing that I would have their friendship and their mentorship and guidance made me feel a lot more safe. That said, it wasn't enough to explain it in a way that others would feel safe about this move. And to be honest, it was still kind of a scary thing because I didn't even apply to American universities because I was uncomfortable with the idea of leaving Canada at that time. In general, I was like, why would I leave Canada? This is where I live. Like, I hear it's lovely. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's nice. No, I mean, it wasn't even like I had huge Canadian pride. I was just like, why? It seems like a big, scary thing to do. Just there's good universities here. So similarly, you know, there were companies I could work for in Canada. And so moving to the U.S. was also a big decision. I think California kind of drew me a little bit and gave me some courage. People, especially back then, this is the early 2000s, like you read about California and Silicon Valley. And I was kind of like, I think given the path that I've chosen, this sort of technology career, it's probably a good place to go. Initially, I kind of used those as pillars to help me make the decision and was kind of like, Let's wait and see what happens. But I will say that this, that decision of like investing in people is one that just kept coming back and coming back because as you know, with startups, like you come and then it sounds nice and then you get into it. And then it's like, well, I don't know if we're going to have enough money for this round. Well, I don't think the angels are going to come and we're going to have to raise money. Well, we can't raise money because I mean, the, you know, and all those types of things start to happen. And you have difficulties, you have personnel difficulties, you have all these conflicts and stuff like that. And it's important to know, like in moments like that, what are the things that would make you want to walk away versus keep the path? And it's an important question to reflect, like what made me actually stay there for five years to see that through? Because many companies don't get that far. Uh, many companies die along the way. And a lot of people usually leave before that happens. But I just kept going back to... I really liked working with my friends and I really trusted them and they always made decisions that demonstrated a lot of leadership, a lot of consideration for their team, as well as for the good of the company. And I think that always made me feel like, okay, this is the closest thing to a family I have here. And I use that word very carefully because I think it gets misused and abused a lot in startups where people will be like, hey, you're like family, come in and you really give everything to this. 
And certainly, I know I was young, I'm sure, you know, I did work a lot. And these days we might say like, maybe I shouldn't have, but I was young and that's what I wanted to do. And that's where I wanted to be. I wanted to be around these friends, building this stuff and enjoying that experience. Yeah. You know, courage, I think has to be refilled. So there might've been something that got me to go over there, but there had to be a regular supply to keep me there. And so in the end, it's the people that that can do that uh, or won't. Mm. Thank you so much. I, it's a very thoughtful way of explaining it. And I like the word you used, investing in people. Mm. So you've been, and let me read this from my screen, a startup founder, CTO, web and iOS engineer, a teacher. You're now a writer, an illustrator, and a DJ. And then you put in on your website to name a few. So there's more, <laughs> of course. So this brings me straight to how I came across you. And I think that you were spotlighted in David Perel's newsletter once, who is a writer who runs a course called Rite of Passage. I'd heard about it through Andrew Berry, who was also a guest on the show a few months ago. And then I read your I read your blog post and I was like, oh my God, this guy gets it. He's <laughs> describing me-ish, you know. Right. <laughs> because a friend of mine, who's also a podcaster called Dr. Andrea Wozniki, had nicknamed me Renaissance Woman. And the word for me makes no sense because I know mm. Renaissance in French and I don't understand the English meaning behind the term. Right. That's right. how I'd landed on polymath. And polymath really was not something that I was equally familiar with. I may be fluent in English, but French is my first language. And so I read you and I read a couple of other posts and I thought, damn, I like that guy. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And so I didn't reach out to you straight away. I just thought, come on, get a grip, (laughs) wait a bit. (laughs) And I registered to get your newsletter and I really, really enjoyed it. So I know that this particular blog post was a big thing for you. Could you perhaps start by telling us about the polymath advantage. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. And I'm so glad you did reach out, you know, later on and we got to chat because it's just been a pleasure getting to know you as a friend outside of everything else. I just want to start with that. Absolute same. Thank you. And you mentioned David Perel and and it's important, I think, and relevant here because I took Rite of Passage 3, the, the third edition, which was in 2019, end of 2019, I think. And that really, I was still working full-time at a big tech company then and, and sort of launched this writing phase of my life. And to be completely honest, it's almost strange now for me to imagine not constantly writing about and reflecting upon how I lived my life and how I used to live my life. Right? That's amazing, right? Right. <laughs> but there was a period of time where I think one of the driving forces I had for enrolling in that course was my, there's, I had this realization that like I was doing all this stuff and learning all these things, but I never synthesized them. And no one outside of the office ever had any clue really of what I was doing or what I was learning. And I felt I didn't really know why that didn't feel right, but it just didn't feel right. So when I saw David Farrell's course, I was like, yeah, that seems kind of interesting. I don't know, writing online, like, I don't know. yeah, I used to blog for fun before. I guess I could 
look into it. Suffice to say that cohort really is when I kicked off my newsletter. That's when I started publishing essays. And that July was when I wrote this essay. Now, interestingly, I will say a couple of things about this. So when an essay goes as big as this one did, so, so what ended up having was I published it in my newsletter with actually a different title and a slightly different structure, but I linked to my blog. And then a bunch of people read it. Some people tweeted it. And what I ended up doing was just kind of editing it and then clarifying the, I renamed it. It used to be called the polymath within. And I just liked the word play a little bit more. So I renamed it to polymath playbook. And while I was writing it, I was just kind of like trying to express this feeling that I had, that I had sort of started to see here and there. There's a book I found called The Polymath where it talks about a bunch of polymaths. But I felt like there was something missing in this conversation. And it was that when people talk about polymaths or Renaissance men or, or things like that, they're always just talking about like Leonardo da Vinci and other very sort of, I find them a little bit unapproachable. Like they're so, it's like, okay, so basically this is a path for absolute genius, like just unfettered, incredible genius. And it just didn't feel that inspiring to me. And I just kind of wanted to say, hey, you know, I've been working on one thing most of my life, but I keep doing these things on the side. And I think there's something there. And that's basically all I was trying to express, really. And when I did a little bit of research, I found, okay, so, you know, there was some method to my madness, like, there was a little bit of this actually makes some sense. And so I started to reflect and notice I had been a CTO co-founder of this healthcare startup. And I realized I had used some principles from my previous startup days from one industry into this industry. And when I was DJing, I realized that was similar to product market fit. So DJing as product market fit, I should probably write that post separately. But this is the thing I've learned is like you're basically uh -huh. testing, right? You have to pay close attention to the signal and then you adjust the product to meet the vibe demand, right? For example, contrast that to a DJ that just shows up and delivers the product that they want to deliver. And they're like, oh, yeah. and they're like, oh, they're not vibing. I'll turn up the volume <laughs> like, and it doesn't work. And then they're like confused. It's all the same. Yeah. And so I started to realize, like, oh, wait a second. There's a lot of these. And, but the only reason I saw it that way was because I had done this other thing. And so I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I started writing about those ideas and I wrote about mental models. And then as I was writing it, this part came up and I was like, well, yeah, this all sounds like it's really nice doing all these things. But like, I think there's some parts of it that are really difficult. And one part I talk about is the sort of sheer loneliness that can happen a lot where, you know, the example I gave was I would be in these... Like you mentioned, there's lots of different career paths that I, that I kind of switched over into. And, and each of these were years uh, of work. And so I, I remember I was in an iOS, iOS developers meetup. So during one phase, I was very dedicated to iOS development. I really liked the iOS platform and animation and, and sort of the care, the craft that goes into apps on that platform. And I was in this conference and it was one of those circles where you're talking with a bunch of people and, and each person with pride would share like how long they've been working on Apple products. And, you know, if they're not like 
young graduates, that's mostly what they've been working on for their career. And so they would say things like 10 years, you know, nine years, 12 years. And I would be like, two. <laughs> but I'm a senior, very senior member of the tech community. I've been a leader, I've been a senior engineer, but I've only been in this and two. And I realized like, I don't really relate to this group at all. Like, I guess I kind of relate in that we're interested yeah. in iOS. But the way that we think about life, the way that we've approached our career, the experiences that we've had, I just felt really alone and isolated in that space. And I realized that this happens. And then I also realized like, well, not only that, but even once I, let's say I start to actually get comfortable in that space, then that makes me uncomfortable <laughs> and I get bored and I want to go to switch, try something new. So I wrote all this stuff in there. And then as I was editing the essay, I was like, well, I have the really nice ideas at the top. And then I have this like personal story. So like, who cares about my personal story? I'm going to delete it. So I literally almost deleted the whole thing. And I was like, it's still a good essay. It's just about you can polymath the jack of all trades quote, jack of all trades. You know, there's an extended version, et cetera, et cetera. Mm, would you give us that? Because I think that was quite a big thing. Yeah. So the quote that most people know is jack of all trades, master of none, which basically tells you like, yeah, you're a master of nothing. You're, you're effectively useless. But there's an, <laughs> there's an effect, there's an extended version, which is jack of all trades is a, is a master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of one. Right. Ha. <laughs> so you know exactly and so you know obviously there's always you know oh well actually this quote isn't really the full actually that the original was that blah 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 but it doesn't actually matter what the origins are the important thing is this only one of them became well known right so it's important to analyze that well why was it that short one that says jack of all trades is a master of none it's because the roots of specialization in our society that started from the industrial era, where we basically determined that, hey, we, like, we basically need to scale humans and we're going to build these factories and humans are going to play a role in it. And honestly, a human that can play multiple roles is like not that useful. We don't really care about that. We really want you to get so good that you can really do that one station like extremely well, right? So our industrial capabilities in our economies are optimized around being super hyper-specialized. And that's why I think quotes like that, that version, the short version are what became prevalent. doesn't even really matter what the origin is, right? So that was an important idea. And then the other idea is I talked about how, hey, you know, it doesn't have to be like that. You can actually go and move forward in, in these multiple areas. There's an important sort of clarification that I put in there, which is that it's not just about like doing a bunch of random things all the time, right? Because you actually will really struggle that. It's more about like, okay, I've chosen this foundational career path. Now I'm, I'm going to explore this one, maybe do some tests before I feel good in it and explore that one as well. And now I can leverage the skills, learnings, perspectives in each of these to improve them each other or create new unique combinations that no one else could do. So, so, you know, I talk about all of those and I expected people to, you know, because people like ideas and they like frameworks and they like intelligent sounding solutions. I was like, okay, they're going to like that. And they're not going to care about, no one knows who I am. No one's going to care about this part of the story. 
So the essay goes out, it starts to get shared a little bit on Twitter. Someone tells me they're like, you know, a week. Oh yeah. So I submitted to Hacker News because they, you know, I was told like, you should do that. Oh, cool. So I submitted it and nothing happened. It's was, it was dead. It was like two, two upvotes died. I was like, oh, well. And I went on with my life, went on to write the next essay. I, this was just one essay, just like all the others, because I was publishing weekly, which is a thing, another thing we can talk about later, but really did change my life. You know, so I was already writing the next one. I was just like, yeah, whatever. I just wrote this thing. Oh, well, it didn't work. Fine. Then I got this notification. I didn't really know Hacker News does this, but sometimes it will automatically resubmit something that didn't do well. I don't know what signal it has or where it makes a decision because it's never ever done this again for me, but <laughs> it resubmitted it and went to the top basically. And so people were messaging me. They're like, you're on Hacker News. And I'm like, what? Now, interestingly, it being on Hacker News got me a lot of, you know, I could see the views coming in. And then there was all the Hacker News comments, <laughs> which were expectedly Hacker News uh-huh. comments. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like it would be like people being like, technically, the term polymath is reserved for people who achieve, I think the phrase was like Grammy level or above excellence in three <laughs> or more different fields. You can't just talk about polymaths and blah, 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 blah. Or it would be like a bunch of quotes like that. And and actually, even they would out them. So they'd be like, I agree with everything in this essay, except he shouldn't have used the word polymath. He should have used some. And then, and then it's like, all right, well, did the ideas at least? It's like, no. And so that, so again, second experience of mine was like, wow, this isn't really resonating or, they're, you know, this is hacker news. I don't know. But then somehow started to get a little traction on Twitter. And I noticed Toby Ludke, the uh, Shopify CEO, tweeted it. And he didn't just tweet it. He was like, range is undervalued in our society. And then Mm. tweeted a link to it. It was a very like advocate tweet. Like it was like, and so so that one went viral. And so then it was just like, I think I had 700 new newsletter subscribers that day. Yes. And it was like 20,000 views and stuff like that. But that's kind of interesting. Like having a post get lots of views is kind of cool. It's cool to happen, but it's like, what does it actually mean? What I think was really cool about it was seeing all the tweets and what people were actually saying about what this piece meant to them. And almost all of them, I actually wrote a follow-up piece talking a little bit about it, but almost all of them were people saying, oh, I thought there was something wrong with me that I didn't know how to socialize and I kept feeling lonely and I thought it was my fault. Or I thought there was something wrong with me that I want to do these other careers and I shouldn't be just focusing and, and being a better worker. And, being, and so they, it felt like, and so they kept talking about my personal story. And I remember thinking like, man, like I was this close to deleting it, thinking like no one cares about personal story. But in reality, the personal story is what makes it resonate with people. Right. Even if they don't know who I am, they're like, I relate and understand kind of the way that you share with this person. Then they're more open to the ideas. And that completely like changed how I think about all of my writing. And so so literally like you could see like a market shift where at first I would like hesitantly and sometimes share personal anecdotes. And then after that, I was like telling my personal story and being authentic and vulnerable as I can being as authentic and vulnerable as I can. 
And then having ideas that I extract out of those is the way that I'm going forward. And it's just been like doubling down on that since then. Mm. Yeah. So I think it's an interesting example. Like people like ideas, they want ideas, but they want to know that they are relevant and relatable to them. And I think if someone read a book about Da Vinci, it's different than reading a post by someone that's like, Hey, I also literally do. And here are, here's photographic evidence of these other things that I do. Not all of them I'm doing today. You can do that also. So yeah, so it was definitely an interesting experience and has been, continues to be, as a post that I still see people every week or something, I'll get something mm. about it. So I'm really glad I wrote it, but it was, it was very much a just like, I don't know. I've been thinking about this. Let me just get it out and we'll see what happens. And I feel like a lot of the posts I write end up being like that because you never really know mm. what's going to resonate in what way. You can't really predict that. So there wasn't much, I hadn't really planned much around it. Mm. Have you heard of the teacher and also Robert McKee? Does that ring a bell? I went to a seminar of his in London earlier this year and I furiously took notes for the three days I was there. (laughs) He's so brilliant. But he said something that felt so right. He said, stories are how we learn Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. without explanations. And of course, then I was like, oh, (laughs) because when I... I remember that's also Yuval Noah Hariri when he wrote Sapiens was saying, you know, story is how we learn Mm -hmm. and how we communicate. Yeah. But I loved understanding that thing about explanation. We don't always want things to be explained. We want to get it another way, right? That's that's the dichotomy of our, our human behavior and perhaps our ego. Yeah. Or... Or it speaks to how distracted we can be when we just hear facts. We want to connect emotionally, right? Maybe that's part of what it is. I think you're totally right. I'm so glad you shared that. There's two things that I'll that come to mind around that. The first one is I read this book called The Science of Storytelling by Will Storr. And I had originally read it to just sort of learn more techniques about storytelling and things like that. But the first chapter of this book. <laughs> it just, I think it's worth a read just for that first chapter. So he, he ends up talking a lot about perception and it's hard to summarize kind of what he's saying, but, but the high level is this, is that, so we don't actually perceive reality. It's basically, it's too much. There's too many things to see and there's too many things to hear. And there's too many things all basically there's sensory inputs are, are too much. Right. And so Our brain basically has to make decisions about which of those to filter out, right? And we kind of don't really realize or pay attention to this fact, but our brain is kind of, it's kind of like, you know, the simple term would be like an algorithm that's choosing what to tell us. But the format with which it tells us is stories. It's literally telling us a story that, oh, you just saw that. Oh, oh, that's what just happened over there. Which is crazy. I mean, to me, it's it's fascinating because then it's like, well, why are stories so fundamental? It's because literally the mechanism and model that our brain uses to perceive reality is a format of a story. So if you package it in that way, then it, your, your brain's like, hmm, this is oh, it's very convenient. It's already in the way that, that I wanted it. I love it. It's packaged the right way. That's how I wanted it. 
it's like literally tastes better to the brain, I feel like, you know, and so people, that's why people are hungry for stories. You know, they always want, that's how we understand things. That's how we remember things. I think that your second point about not being explained is very relevant and interesting to me personally, because I've been for the past couple of years engaging in this practice of writing fables which are stories, you know, with lessons in them, but they're not explained. You kind of have to do a little bit of work to understand. And and there's levels of how clear versus ambiguous it is. But what I think is interesting about these packages and why people really enjoy them is at first I thought it was kind of like people like puzzles and they like figuring stuff out. And there's, there's some element of that. Like if you watch a movie and you figure something out that took a little bit of putting two and two together. It feels good. It feels like a rewarding thing. So you like that. But what I like about fables and, and stories that are what I call them abstract vehicles. So if I tell you a story and it's so specifically about me that you could never imagine yourself in it, basically that's like a fact. It's just some information about something else that isn't you. But if I tell you a story and maybe it's about a fox or maybe it's about a cat, then you might be able to imagine yourself as that. And this happens a lot in stories where it doesn't have to be abstracted literally into an animal. It can also be like a friend of mine once wrote um, this story about their own experience and struggles with depression and things like that. It was a very heartfelt piece. And um, one of his friends texted him after reading it and was like, oh, I'm so glad you wrote about this and this. And then my friend kind of replied like, I didn't write that. You know, that was all you, man. And I always remember that because people, this is your brain at work, is like, hey, this story is about this and this. And if you give people a vehicle that's abstract, it allows them to extract what they need to see from it. Now, of course, this can go the wrong way where people just see what they want to see and ignore what you're trying to say. And they're not trying to empathize with what you're trying to say. So we have to be aware of kind of both sides of it, where the brain will actually do this. It will be like, Mm. oh, that's blue. (laughs) (laughs) And, And it's because my brain labels as blue, your brain labels as green. Right. And when you really go down this path, it's a little bit it's a little bit disconcerting because like we don't actually have a shared understanding. It's just we're all just kind of like hoping that our interpretations are close enough generally. Mm, Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, no wonder communication is such a minefield between human beings. Right. Right. Like you said, um, quoting from that book by Will Storer, we don't have the same perceived reality because I don't know how you're relating or telling a story about the moment that we're in right now, for example. It's a minefield. That's the thing that I think about a lot is like you and I could be right now sitting next to each other. We could both be staring at the same thing, the exact same thing and be, quote unquote, seeing different things. Right. Mm. And so it's important for us to keep that in mind and how that's just part of the nature of our society is that we're all going to have slightly different interpretations. But what is the shared element Mm. that we want to connect on and and how can we make sure that that part 
is what's communicated, right? The key essence, mm. like the intent or the direction or the action that, that's warranted. So mm-hmm. with storytelling, one of the things that I think about a lot is what's the message you're trying to get people to take away from this? Like when you're workshopping a story and sometimes people will be like, well, this is what I saw. And it's like, that's nice. But what do you think most people who see this are going to see? That's your job is figuring out you are kind of responsible for that. If you're trying to be somebody who literally anyone who participates in a society, then you need to know what is it that you're actually saying. And this is where all that the science comes in of like, I'm going to do a really bad job of quoting exact numbers on this. But there's some studies that have been done around like if you and I have a conversation and what percentage of the signals that we exchange are derived from the words versus the tone and body gestures and facial expression. And effectively, it's it's a lot more of the facial expressions and the tone than it is the words. Yeah. And so that should tell us that the package is more than just the words. The package includes Mm. all these different facets. And we need to keep that in mind when, when we're communicating. Absolutely. I wanted to grab a book, but it's actually on the table over there. So I Mm. can't. I think you'll really enjoy it. It's called Peak Mind Mm. by a lady called Amishi Jha. She's based in Miami University. And her research is on attention. And she says, yeah, roughly about 60% of what we're reading or what we're listening to when we exchange with someone, we're not going to remember. Yeah. So let's say roughly about 50% of the experience that we're actually putting our attention upon is going to not be part of our awareness. And then she did say as well that it's about 50% of your immediate brain's attention goes into the visual field. Literally like 50% of your brain's energy is to try and understand what happens that comes in through sight. So you realize that for the rest of the brain's power, there's a lot of uh, negotiations. (laughs) that's a good way to put it yeah who's getting the information at this point in time but now let me ask you something else first how did you get into writing yeah I mean I think writing you know I actually when I was in university I used to blog I had this blog called daretorant.com and I would wake up at like 2 a.m and basically be annoyed about something and I would go and write these really long rants and they're actually I still think they're like (laughs) some of my best work they're like pretty hilarious I'm gonna look this up I think I had one that was titled like something like booking flights is like eating cereal where the special marshmallows are razor blades or something like that. Like it was <laughs> like, it was just unhinged. Like just, I'm going to complain about this, it, you know, and I complained about how, and I was like, American is not a measurement system. Like it was just like this, it was just like stuff like that. And so it was just pure, like fun and, and silliness. And so I did get, but I did actually have my friends would read it and they would be quite entertained by the stupidity of this. And but they would really want to read more. And so that was my first experience of like writing and having some kind of audience that was like, why haven't you written another one? But I didn't really, you know, I kind of stopped doing that at the end of university. And then it was probably I actually had a 
when I started teaching, I started teaching at coding boot camps. I taught in South Africa uh, once, launching a coding boot camp there, which was really fun, as well as in in New York in at General Assembly. And so I had a lot of these students that wanted to like continue learning from me. And so I would write this newsletter. I basically launched this newsletter called, it was called Laugh and Learn. And so I would include some like silly memes and, you know, things like that. And then also some useful learning materials. But I put in like so much effort into the layout and all these little things that like, it was just like so much work just to get one out. And so I only had three editions and then I couldn't do anymore. And ever since then, I actually was afraid to start a newsletter because I thought I would just quit again. And I would feel, and I felt like kind of bad and, and really guilty and kind of, kind of, it just didn't want to really even approach it. And so it was only through Rite of Passage that I was like, okay, you know what? I think I could do this. And it, one of the things about Rite of Passage is you write, it's six weeks and you write six in published six essays. Like it really gets you into this cadence. And I started, you know, write, I launched my newsletter, Quick Brown Fox. And it was funny, actually, the three editions went by and I was like, oh, oh no, this is the one. It's going to die. <laughs> So, and it was weird. It was like, there's really no rational thing here. Why would this matter? But it does. Mm. It just does. You know, and and sometimes it doesn't matter. Rational, no rational. Like, hey, you're human and you're going to be affected by things and you have to be aware of that. So my fourth edition, I sort of cheated and I was just like, hey, you know, I once launched this newsletter and it was scary and it died after three. So I've been scared for number four. So here's number four. And, and I published that and it, and it was, you know, people related and, and it was great. And I went on and kept going. So I will say like, I have switched to like a two week cadence while I've been writing the book, but writing and publishing weekly is a serious, serious game changer. I would recommend like anyone who's kind of struggling with writing, just give yourself some kind of cadence like that. And, you know, I started by feeling like, what am I going to write? I mean, how, what can you even say every week? Like, God, I just wrote a week ago. You want me to do it again? Like, you know what I mean? Like, and then it, it gets to this point where it's like, my God, it's just always something to say. There's always more to say. There's like things that are piling up. Ideas are piling up. Mm. You know, I think that that's a really interesting thing about creativity. I feel like the more I create, the more I have. It's the complete opposite. The metaphor of like a bottle doesn't work. It's more like... Yeah. um I don't know what the metaphor is. We don't have things like this. It would be like a battery. The more you use it, the more energy it has in it. I mean, kind of, I guess that could work. But the point was, I really did kick it off and and I started to have lots of things to write. But I was only writing all nonfiction newsletters and essays and things like that. Right? So to your other question, like, well, where did did fables come in? So this is kind of interesting. And I think, and I use this as an example of like, you shouldn't try and plan everything. So I definitely didn't plan this. And I think it's a good example of that. So at some point in this journey of writing, I started to include other silly experiments, like little animation loops that I was making. I saw some of them. They're so cute. (laughs) Thanks. I would just put them in and I loved doing it because I would provide absolutely no explanation. It would be like, 
I would talk about like self-awareness. You can build self-awareness using the thought, blah, 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 blah. And I've done that. Also, <laughs> here's this two worms going in a circle. Like it was just like completely. Yeah. But, you know, people will be like, I love that. Like, I love seeing what are weird, random things. And I was like, this is cool. This is cool. So I was like, okay, I want to get more into, into drawing. So, so here's a, a funny circle that happened. Okay. So as I mentioned earlier, I like animation, right? And so I've been playing with these animation loops. Now, the thing about animation is it's incredibly time consuming, especially the kind that I wanted to, which is hand-drawn animation. And so I would just make these short loops. And the reason that I wanted to make these animations sort of try and make them was I was hoping it would help me make a longer film, but it's still like so much work to make something bigger. And what I learned is like, well, if you want to get better at that, you should learn how to draw well. And when you learn how to draw well, then it'll be easier to do animation. So I started going back to learning. I mean, I started learning how to draw so that I could eventually make animation someday. At least that was my reasoning then. So I bought all these books, of course, all these art books, none of which I've actually finished or read in any way. Like, like it was very, I'm completely honest. Like I find so many of them like really uninspiring. They'll be like lesson one, draw like 1000 circles. Oh, wow. And it's like, yes, no, I understand. I, if I did do that, that would be good. But do you realize that that is literally the least amount of fun I could ever have in my life. Like, this is so boring. Make me do something fun. But, you know, I tried. So I started learning and learning to draw. You can go into all these different branches. And so I was learning gesture drawing, figure drawing, trying to draw realistic people and characters and, and humans and things like that. And I was complaining to my buddy. I was like, eh, they're not like great yet. And he's like... Okay. Well, and I'm like, well, that's not even it. It's like, I'm not even having fun. It's just like so much work to learn this. And I don't really know why I'm doing it. And he was like, you know, one thing that's interesting about drawing humans is that you know exactly what a human looks like. You have very strong preference about that. So when you try to draw a human, you basically look at it and you're like, well, that's wrong and it's bad. And he's like, you know what you should do? You should like make up animals and then draw those because then they can't be wrong. No matter what you draw, it's not wrong. And oh I was my like, God, that's such a great advice. So that's my friend, Dave Gorham. I got to give him shout out, shout outs. But I was like, that's a wild idea. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, just make it up. Just any animal. And I was like, okay. And I started drawing rat animals. So the elephant, the fox, the rat, all these ones that you saw, they all came just, just for me. Oh. Not even really knowing how to draw, quote unquote, just like imagining some wild, strange, colorful animal and just making it and just trying to draw it. And awesome. just, you know, obviously do it a few times. But, you know, I was able to use color and things like that that I wasn't able to play with before. And it was really fun. So I started sharing those. Again, no goal, no purpose. But I started making tiny little comics about, about them and things like that. One day... I was looking at one of the characters and I was like, I wonder what their story is. What's their story here? And I didn't know what to do with that because I had never written any kind of stories or fiction or anything like that. But there was this bird that I had drawn a few times and suddenly this story came into my head of this bird that doesn't know how to fly and everybody else does. And that's kind of the premise 
of the first story I wrote. And I remember we had in through Rite of Passage, you know, you can meet people and then you get together and, and you have these groups where you review essays. And so one day, instead of an essay, I brought this story and they read it and they were like, oh, there's like a lesson in here. And oh, this is kind of interesting. Like you should, this is really cool. Like you should really do these. Mm-hmm. And I was like, really? You know, because I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know. I had never written anything like that. I didn't even know what writing a story was. Like, I think that so many of the things we do, we have to like know what we're doing and figure the thing out and be qualified or study it or what have you. And in some cases, they just, if the thing wants to come through you, it will. You just have uh-huh. to like let it just be playful and just let it show up. And it only showed up because I didn't have all these big plans for it. It just wants to come to play. It's not here for me to yet for me to make something big out of it. And so then Mm. that's where that first story came. And then I didn't really know what to do with it. So I didn't really do anything with it for a while. And then uh, fast forward to, I was kind of going along in my creative journey and, you know, I was happy with my newsletter and my essays and all these different things I was doing. But I had this hunger to kind of take my writing and make something bigger out of it. Something, you know, like a book, for example, is one idea I had. And so I saw this ad. I don't know if it was an ad or it was through Seth, Seth Godin's blog post. It's actually how I found it for this program that he helped launch called Writing in Community. And the premise of the program was like super fascinating. It was like, okay, you go into this program and there's like a forum effectively. And every day you post a little bit of your writing and you tag some people and they'll just be like, nice, keep going or whatever. And you just do this for like six months. And then at the end, you publish a book to Kindle. And I was like, oof, that, wow, writing a book, like that's so intimidating. That doesn't sound, this sounds almost too good to be true or I don't really believe it. But I, you know, there's a lot of people on there that are like, yep, yep, that's what happened. And so I was like, wow, all right. Well, I don't know if I'm going to publish it in Kindle, but at a very minimum, like maybe I could compile some stuff. And so my idea was I'll take some of the ideas around polymath stuff and I'll compile them into a book. So I signed up for this program. Okay. And it started like two months later or a month and a half later. So I'm like, yeah, it'll be something about polymaths. I don't really know. I mean, I kind of have written some stuff around it. It seems like something I could write a book about, right? And then on your first day, like you're supposed to write that first post, which is like, what is this book? Like, what do you want to write about? So I sat down to write this post about what I just said. And I was like, yeah, I guess I could write this book about these polymath ideas. Yeah, that's that's pretty, I guess that's pretty exciting. And then suddenly I remembered that I had written that story. And I was like, you know what would be kind of cool is if I wrote more of those stories. It was literally like very much just an idea that popped in and was like, you know, you could do it because this is as low stakes, like no one knows. I hadn't talked about it. I didn't tell anyone I was in this program. It was like my secret little place where I could theoretically write this book. And the book that I talk about endlessly, my favorite book, The Little Prince, was just... I was going to bring it up. (laughs) (laughs) It was just sitting in front of me at that time. I think I had just reread it and ordered another copy of it or something. And I was like, yeah, you know, that was kind of like a fable. Is that why I really like that? Do I like fables? Is that kind of what 
because that story I wrote was basically a fable, but I just didn't, I didn't realize these things. And I really want to call that out now because a lot of times when people see someone's path, they're like, oh, he decided to write fables and then he started writing fable. And it's like, no, I didn't even really know what I was writing until it already was written, the first one, you know, and, and I was like, what if I wrote more? If I had given myself like a really scary goal, like I need to write a book about full of these stories. I actually don't know if I would have been able to do it. No, I was going to say, sure, because it suddenly it just feels really impressive. Too yeah. much, almost. It's too much. And because we're not, I mean, especially if you haven't done it before, like I had not done anything like that before. I've never even written fiction in my whole life. That story, the only thing I had was that story. So technically I have no real evidence that I can do this right? Effectively. But this program was saying, "Eh, it's fine, just show up and post like a paragraph or something and just keep going. So a lot of times when people write stories, they have an outline for a story. They have some kind of idea, something. (laughs) And But there were people here that did not have that. They would just show up and write whatever showed up that day. And I was like, this is interesting. I'm a very like planny. I like plans. I like to <laughs> I like to plan stuff. Even if I'm not going to work on it, I like having my plan. And so I was very, very confusing, but I was like, okay, fine. I'll try it. I'll try it. And the results were nothing short of spectacular in every measure that I can have, which is I would show up and these stories would write they would basically, I would, it literally felt like I would show up to write, but also as an audience of my story to figure out what happened next. Mm. And I would just let the story go wherever. And people would be there like commenting like, oh, wow, I wonder what happens next. And I was like, this is amazing. I'm reading their stories. They, and actually, I just want to say one thing. I think when we talk about feedback and community, we often talk about like having good critical feedback that helps you improve your craft. We don't talk about just the, the immense value of just like, yep, keep going. That's it. Like sometimes I would come in and I would be like, why am I, what am I even doing here? And then they would be like, what happens next? That's it. That's all. And that's enough for me to keep going for like another week, honestly. And I just didn't appreciate this. But before I knew it, there was a story about a a fox with many tails, a story about a cat and a turtle, which are on a ship. And there's another and, and there's another and another and another. And six months went by and I had drafted six fables, six full, like 3000 word ish, you know, long, short story ish uh, fables. and. It was that was one of the most fun experiences I've had in my life. Now, I didn't choose to just publish them straight to Kindle because I wanted to kind of really work on them and really grow them to be the best stories they could be. That's a choice. I didn't have to do that, but that was kind of the approach I wanted to take. I did a second writing community where I basically would take the stories I had drafted and then I had an editor that I found and I would workshop them and then share the edited versions. Here's one really cool thing about this way of writing stories. There's lots, but one that is worth calling out for anyone listening is like, if you share a small section of your story to somebody, one thing that happens is you realize they're going to read that section from start to finish. You naturally, you'll make it 
a little bit interesting and have a little bit of suspense at the end. Like there'll be a little bit of tension, a little suspense at the end. And so then when you put these together, your story has good tension and build up and suspense throughout. Whereas if you had just written the whole thing, you're just thinking like the start of the story and the end of the story. You're not thinking about the middle. And, you know, that's what people talk about. They talk about like, oh, the middle is super boring or, or whatever it is, right? But when you share in these little pieces, you, you, I kind of call it like writing in scenes. If a scene is that section, there's this free benefit that you're like, well, I, want, I don't want them to be bored when they read this. So I'm going to make that interesting. And then your whole story ends up being that way. Now, the drafting was fun, but revising has been a lot of work. <laughs> like, like to actually turn it into a real, a great story that has a good narrative arc. And then the characters have good motivations. There's depth. I've had to learn a lot through this process. But, you know, it's, it's my first time doing it. And I think it'll go a little bit better the second time. But then again, I think that's kind of the cost of having more of a free range draft is you do a little bit more work on the editing side. But yeah, that's where I'm at now. Almost done with the revisions on that. Yay. So, <laughs> Yay tell me about why The Little Prince is such an inspiration to you. Happily, happily. So it's interesting, like, I've been obsessed with this book. By the way, there's also a, a film adaptation on Netflix. I mean, I would just say, given how much this book meant to me, I thought the film would be a disappointment because most adaptations don't quite live up to the book. But I really liked it. So for anyone listening, don't necessarily want to read the book, even though it's a nice short book. You can check out the film, too. It's really good. I always feel a little hesitant, like sharing lessons and, and things about The Little Prince, because I just feel like the book is so beautiful and so well written that I would just want people to read it. Like I actually keep a stack of copies there that you can see. Anytime people come over, I'll just give them one. But, but to take a stab at it, here's a few things I would say. Firstly, one of the big themes in the book is that there is this little prince who understands things a little bit differently than all the adults that he keeps running into. And these adults think that they understand. He runs into these different planets. And in one planet, there's an adult who's just counting the stars. And he's kind of like, well, why are you counting the stars? He's like, well, because I own them. And so I want to keep count. And then he's like, well, how does that help you? And then he's like, I don't have time for this. You obviously don't understand anything. I own all the stars, so I'm going to count them. And I need to, no, I need to be really good at counting them. So go away. And he's like, okay, adults are weird. And then he goes to another planet and there's a king. And the king's like, I rule over the whole planet. And he's like, there's no one else on this planet. He's like, I rule over the whole planet and my rule is very important. And then he's like, okay, anyways, can you like, so he just keeps running into these situations. They're kind of like, they're little fables within this story. And then he has this pilot that he kind of, which is kind of like represents the author, Antoine de, de Saint-Exupéry, who similarly like doesn't quite understand what's really important in life. And this little prince really does. Through this story, it helps us question these things that happen to us when we grow from being children into adults, where we think like being serious and making money and prestige and these types of things are really important. But when you look at a child, it sounds like they're just worrying about childlike things. But usually they actually understand things that are important. 
in really deep, profound ways that, that it's easy to forget and lose that. And I think that that is a powerful lesson. I kind of, my journey in my creative work is to become more and more connected with that sort of little Salman, that sort of childlike side of me that I hope to keep growing and allowing to play it and manifest. And similarly, like giving people permission to do that in their lives. I think I also really appreciate the way that this book is written, where it's kind of like a children's book. You, some people call it a children's book. I don't. I would say it is a book that children can read. And it is a book that adults should read, is how I would describe it. I would agree with you there. I mean, I haven't read it for a long time. So I'm thinking to myself, I should get myself a copy. <laughs> yeah. Most but, people are in that situation. Most people I talk to are like, yeah, I read it as a kid. But now I'm making a different link. You loved animations and games. You love little brands. You are writing a book, book of fables. You are illustrating That's the right. book of fables. Do you see where I'm going with this? Is there going to be a film? Is there going to, are you already imagining that this could be animated? Or am I going too far for you? Too far? I mean, I try to be careful not to get too attached to, oh, you want to dream, but don't get attached kind of thing. And so is there a world in which this book that I'm writing, which does, you know, actually this is a struggle that I've been having is that I wrote the fables as just a set of them. Right. And they're, and then I wrote this other story appeared where there is, I won't spoil it, but there's a little boy who goes through a certain experience and it actually provides a framework for the other fables to fit into that world. And I really liked that technique. Little Prince obviously is an example of this where there's a story and then there's sub stories within that. And I just really like that package. I feel like it's a really magical way to do it. However, it's a very difficult thing to do well. And so I've been going through a lot of provisions on that. Do I see a world where there's like an animated version of these book and the stories? Yeah, I mean, that would be amazing. But it seems like, you know, realistically, like the first goal is to write a book, uh, which I'm almost done. The second goal is to publish the book. The third goal would be to get visibility on the book and see if it resonates, right? Like, so the way that I would describe it is if these stories really do resonate with people, then there will be some demand for people to hear these stories in other formats, right? And that would be an interesting one for someone to explore. I don't necessarily know like that I would want to do that myself, mostly because animation is the most amount of work you could do for any given thing. And mm. it's kind of tough these days. The animation industry is going through some stuff. Sure. It's a tough time for the, that industry. I feel like a more palatable or approachable version of that is the following. So I've been writing these longer stories for the book, but I also have very short fables, like, you know, 500 word or less, like flash fables or, or that I've sort of been calling them. And I have a lot of these. They just really keep coming in. And so far I've been submitting them to literary magazines and things like that. But I kind of have a dream of just having a separate publication just for those. 
where I would illustrate those. And, and it's much more straightforward to say, here's a 30 second animation where I tell a story and draw some pictures for it and you get to watch it. It may take me months to do one, but I could at least do one, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that's an idea. I think animation has a very special power to really delight us. And I've always, even when I was building software, animation was one of my obsessions and the ways that I used to really differentiate myself was I would add all these really subtle animations that most people wouldn't notice, but some people would. And I I just think the way that I always would explain it to people would be, it's not the animation, it's someone experiencing something and then realizing, you know, someone put effort in just for me. They did all this extra work to improve this experience. And so Mm. they relate to the heart. They relate to the the energy that that is now coming in from someone who cares. It's like a chocolate on your pillow, right? It's not what flavor is the chocolate. No, no, no. It doesn't matter. They just want to know that someone frankly gives a shit like just it's thoughtful it's thoughtful so I think you can apply that in so many things right like and you know this I think I remember uh, even we even talked about it a little bit but like consideration for details like that really Mm. matter and I think I'm curious if you run into this too because sometimes you hear a lot of the narrative around like perfectionism is a trap and and it'll get you stuck and blocked and you should just be pragmatic and like put stuff out and, and, and it's fine. And I feel like I both totally agree with that and also totally agree that you should be able to go like the extra mile, even to unreasonable extents to do those little things mm-hmm. So that when people see that and notice that and experience that, they're like, oh, my God, like, look at the little level of details here, you know. Yeah. I was watching this interview of Elizabeth Gilbert Mm. because of a post (laughs) of yours that I read yesterday. She was talking about perfectionism as as fear. And she calls it, what was she? She had this really great analogy. It was like, she was like, it's fear in high heels and a mink fur coat. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, it's all dressed up. Right. (laughs) So you don't understand, but really it's fear. I think her distinction is interesting. I think the motivation behind what you add and the length that you go through in your thoughtfulness is, are you scared of putting it out or is it just not ready yet? Right. 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 Because if you're very connected to your intention and the experience you want the other person to have yes. on the other end, yes. and that you know that in the stage that it's at, you're not going to be delivering on your intention, then you kind of have to either go back and renegotiate with yourselves, yeah, whoever you are, however you want to get there, yeah, or you just embrace the thoughtfulness and let it lead you. Yeah, I so appreciate you saying that. I think it's so true. Even to the point where there would be times where I would be like, why am I going through this extra effort and stressing about this and worrying about this? And it's like, it's because you care. Like, it's good to care. I'm lucky. Like, my wife reminds me of that. She's like, what is the reason? It's because you care. It's okay. Don't, 
feel bad that you care. Like that's okay. You can now make choices about how to uh, apply that feeling and channel it and things like that. I think the thing I'm really resonating with what you said is you have to be the arbiter to determine what is good enough versus there's more to be done. And if you really, the fear that probably shows up there is you're too afraid to trust yourself. And so you want to rely on maybe somebody else, somebody else's validation, somebody else's permission. And this can get you into trouble because a lot of times, you know, like a simple example would be like, even in this writing and community thing, there's a lot of people that are like, if you're not publishing it to Kindle after the first six months, you're getting stuck and you're, you know, you're, you're just pushing it too long. I think I heard a phrase, which I didn't resonate with, which was like, you know, your first book should be like clearing your throat before you start speaking. I've come to understand now that things people say are meant for certain people. And if they're not meant for you, it's okay to completely ignore them and just continue because there's still absolutely that really do need to hear that. Mm-hmm. Like they really do. They're really like stuck and feeling overwhelmed and they just need to get something out to move forward. But that doesn't mean that you are that person. <laughs> like, even if there's similar external traits, like you're both still working on something, right? Sometimes I get into this where I'll talk to different people on the internet and they'll give me their opinions about things. And I had someone do that where, you know, like, well, I think, you know, you're, you're spending a lot of time on it. Maybe you just need to get it out. And I'm like, no, like the whole reason I'm doing it is so that I can make sure the stories are compelling, that the illustrations are in there, that the paper is good. Like these things will happen. And I know that I'm making progress every day. That's all I can really do. But I think you're totally right that we have to, as we're doing the work, we have to develop our sense about the work, our senses and our our taste of when it's ready. That's almost just as important, right? Yeah. Well, Oh, so a few weeks ago, I think I'd been digesting a passage from Seth Godin's last book, The Practice. Mm-hmm. It sort of came up in the middle of writing a blog post about how the work itself has expectations from us. Yeah. And if the work is putting out a newsletter every week, then it's not the same thing as what it is when you're writing a book. Right. And if the book is going to be in print, then it's not going to be the same thing as writing it or delivering it for Kindle because Kindle, you can update it and suddenly, boom, yesterday's version is no longer (laughs) your own version, a a new post of it. So I think the work has expectations. You even said, and I know that you read Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, which I loved as well. And sometimes the idea, the creativity, the story, the work, whatever you want to call it, it's meant to have a certain form and you kind of have to wait until that form is staring at you in the face. That's right. Yeah. I think these are tough things to balance because we have to know the difference between are we actually procrastinating here or are we fulfilling how this thing wants to show up? I always kind of think of it as... I just want to do the stories justice. Like Mm. the characters in these stories, I want to do them justice. Like I want to write them the way that they, they want to be written. And it's, it's really funny how these things happen. Sometimes there's like a character that I 
didn't have or introduced in the original one, removed, and then they came back in a different way to solve a like problem I had in the narrative. And it really does feel, I mean, it sounds silly, but it really does feel like they're like real characters mm. that, are, that are like, okay, can you make sure that <laughs> describe this wrong or tell this tale wrong? Like, this is the tale we want to tell. You know, mm. I think you're right, though. It does start to feel that way. And I actually went through this really cool course the other day, not the other day, last month called Psychology for Writers. And it basically helps you use psychology principles to learn about character development. And, um, and I used this to focus on that overarching tale that I was struggling on. And it really helped me rethink that character and gave me a whole new lens of it. And it felt that way a little bit at the end. I was like, Oh yeah. Okay. This is how it is. Okay, cool. I could finally move forward. Honestly, I'm so happy we're having this conversation because it is such it comes from the intention of what it is that you want to put out in the world. And then that thing gets formed and that thing has its own sort of a life. Right. And that thing is going to interact with the world and it could exist beyond your lifetime and connect with other people. And that in itself is completely magic. It is. The fact that we're connecting from a continent and a half away, just about because of, that first post that you did, that in itself also is kind of magic. It really is. I feel like there's all these metaphors that people use sometimes where, where it's like, oh, you only got um, 100 views on that video. Can you imagine if you were in a room doing something and there were 100 people? Oh, my God. Mm. Just happily watching you do it. Can you imagine like how that would feel? And I always try to remember that of like, God, even one person that you really, that really resonates with what you're doing. Actually, since you used the word magic, I wanted to share. Oh, sure. There's kind of two books really that inspire me. So one of them is Little Prince. The other one is this very unknown book. It's so fun. It's literally called Six Animal Plays. Wow. And it's just, it's a very sort of strange, obscure book. It's not, it's not really fables. They're just literally plays that children can enact in schools. And each of them is like a different animal. And, and this, the illustrations are really cool. They look like this. Oh my um, God, they're beautiful. They're absolutely gorgeous. So I later learned that the illustrator for this, the, the, the author is Frank Carpenter, but the illustrator is Ronald Searle, whose style is very inspirational. And... Um, this book was published 1953, okay? And you can't really buy this book. I don't even remember how I found it. I think I saw someone tweet an illustration about it and I just found it in a used bookstore. It's not in print anymore. Um, but I read it and it's just, it really gave me a bunch of energy, like these pictures and these little stories about animals. And it made me think like, okay, this book like this, this, this person, this author's, you know, passed away. Meanwhile, this little book that they wrote is sitting here, giving me the energy to write my book. And that's insane to me. Like, and so I think about that and it's like, when people talk about books, they're talking about like, 
how many thousands of copies and, and how, what else happened and afterward. And it's like, well, what if it ended up being a book that someone kept in the room and looked at sometimes and it, it helped them like really do the thing they really wanted to do? That's magic, right? Like it, it really is. So sometimes I just think about this of like, this person did not make millions. No one knows what this book is. That's fine. I do. And it's helping me. And that's a lot. That's awesome. I completely agree with you. I'm like you in the sense that there are a couple of books that I always give more copies of. And now I like the author so much that once I read her book, I generally buy three or four and I just keep keep a stash somewhere. Have oh, you I heard get- of Elif Shafak? Uh, no. She's a Turkish writer based in, in the UK. She writes in Turkish and English. And one of her seminal books is called The 40 Rules of Love. And it's the story of Rumi and his friendships with Shams of Tabriz. And it's just, oh, Oh, that sounds wonderful. I'm so, I even read it in Italian when I was learning the language. Because I figured I've read it like four or five times in English. It's bound to help me to learn. That's awesome. Yeah. I wanted to come back to something else though. Because I think that a lot of the, what I'm piecing together when I'm connecting what you did with your essays with your favorite book and your fables, you were talking about synthesizing, integrating what you've learned. And obviously, because you've got such a breadth of experiences and different kind of knowledge, that generalist or polymath knowledge, forgive me, listener, if you don't agree with me using the term. <laughs> and I was wondering, I know that you started meditating, journaling, and taking long walks around the same time. I'd love to hear from you. How much do you think that had an impact on both these different kinds of writing? Yeah, huge, huge impact. So I will say a couple of things. Each of those I could talk about for hours, but meditation, journaling, and walks, I think each are worthy of just talking about. So I'm really glad you brought them up. So first of all, when I first started getting into meditation, it was during my period of a sort of burnout and kind of going through a sabbatical. And so I started to learn meditation and I was really getting quite immersed into books to understand the directional goals and, and how to kind of use it. How is it helpful and things like that. And I, I actually started meditating for an hour every day. And I did this for almost two months. And during that period of time, something happened where I would wake up and be excited and very happy because I knew I could go and meditate. And this was a very, I haven't really had that experience. It's not really my experience today, but that was the experience then because I had created this space for myself, which was just, it just felt like I was like, this is awesome. Like I was just sitting in my apartment, but my apartment felt like paradise actually, honestly speaking. And I think that some people ask like, oh, do I have to meditate for an hour every day? And it's like, well, for me, I feel like, like some people talk about going on week-long meditation retreats, like Vipassana and 10-day retreats, things like that. I think what I have learned is that sometimes you need to do things to get a reference point. So like it gave me a, a feeling, a felt sense of what it is like to experience in that way. And, you know, after that, I didn't necessarily have to meditate for an hour, but I noticed 
you can kind of look for that felt sense in lots of places. So you can meditate, you can sit down and meditate in the way that is sort of taught and practiced. You can also sort of stare at a tree and just kind of really look at it. And, and then maybe you'll see a bird. And one of the things that happens sometimes is I notice like, I'm not looking at the birds. I'm looking at, it's like, that's a bird. I'm looking at that specific one and you can get completely immersed in its story and its world. And it feels similar. It feels like you're like, yeah, this is kind of enough. This is like a really beautiful thing and it's happening all the time. And then you sort of zoom back out into your world where you're not paying attention to the trees. You're not seeing the birds. You're not seeing any of those things and you're just zooming through your life. So what I realized is like, Oh, those little windows are, they're just everywhere all the time. And so the practice is remembering that they exist throughout the day and taking a look every so often, right? And I think that that was kind of like a pretty big game changer for me where it was less about like for one hour or for 10 minutes or 15 minutes, I'm going to be nice and meditating and present and all that. And then the rest of the day, I'll just do what I normally do. Instead, I started to try and apply that sort of mindset mindfulness. Now, again, this is a challenge. I'm not saying it, you know, like I always revert and struggle with it like, like anybody else, but it really does change how you look at most things. So the other thing that meditation gave me was you're asked to sit down and sort of pay attention to your thoughts you kind of watch them like clouds, right? You're the expert, so you know this, but you kind of watch them like clouds, you go by. And, and a lot of times I would look at them and, and I would find interesting things. Like, for one thing, I think that sometimes we think we're worried about one thing and then you meditate and a lot of these thoughts show up and you're like, interesting. I didn't even know I was, what's up with that? I think that's interesting. Just like looking at it as like a log. And Naval Ravikant, he talks about it. He's like living in debug mode, which means you're kind of always looking at the log where thoughts appear. And then you're like, that's interesting. <laughs> Stuff with that. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, and then you, know. you can notice, is this useful? You can Do notice. I need to pay attention to this or that's is this right. not useful? And can I let it go? That's right. And so a lot of people will ask about the writing and they'll say like, Oh, well, I noticed that you are self-aware in this part of this writing. How do you do that? And it's like, well, you don't sit down and be self-aware in the writing. You have to live in that way where you're noticing those things. Then we go into journaling, which is your opportunity to capture a bunch of things you might've noticed, give yourself prompts to discover these. I usually have like, one thing I'm grateful for, what gave me energy and what drained my energy and one self-learning. So usually the self-learning one is like, what was surprising? So, so for example, I did this thing and I expected to feel this way, but it actually made me feel that way. I wonder why. And then you explore that and you'll learn something about yourself. And if you do this often enough, it's kind of like you're constantly in this sort of analysis or at least perspective mode where you're not mm. you're not necessarily like just letting it happen and and you're also not trying to analyze everything like it's a fine balance right but i would say so put all that in perspective a lot of what i've just said is a very proactive set of steps right it's basically like 
do this and do that. And then these things will happen. It's kind of, if you think about it, these are actions we can take. But I, I read this book called Rest by Alex Payne. And he just talks about rest and its importance in a bunch of different ways. And one of the things he talks about is creativity. Uh, he talks a lot about what are the things that allow us to be creative. And somewhere in there, he just talks about going for walks. And he says the following. He basically is like, you should know that <laughs> like, there is your conscious brain and its ability to think things and do work and stuff. And then there's your subconscious. And it does a whole totally different set of tasks. And we'll talk about that. So one of the things he mentions is like, if you start thinking about a problem and you're not sure exactly how you feel about it, and then you just stop and you go for a walk. If you, for example, listen to a podcast, try and do other work, the subconscious part of you that wanted to still work on that problem, it can't because now you're thinking and you're activating and you're exploring and you're absorbing more information. But if you just walk, like, which to me was crazy at the time, just go for a walk, no phone, no podcast, no nothing, just walk. And then like actually immerse yourself in the physicality of like literally taking steps, noticing the trees, et cetera, et cetera. One thing is it does, it's relaxing and, and good for you. And certainly that's true. Another thing it does is when your physical body is engaged in an activity, actually washing dishes is an example of this. Most physical labor that's intensive is an example of this. It's so engaged in that, that you can't really do much else. And then your subconscious is like, okay, cool. I'm going to go, I'm going to go do some built up processing. Totally, totally right? agree. I think we all have these things and, and we can start to figure out what they are, but it's like, there's somewhat of a backlog because, you know, Salman, you literally are just like reading and watching and talking and reading and watching. And it's like, that's a lot, man. And so I need to process that. If we want to actually do anything, we need to stop for a minute. And I'm like, I'll give you one walk. <laughs> Like, like, you know, and, but, but I love that it. actually can be sufficient in some cases. Like if I'm working on a problem and I go for a walk, literally, honestly, I, I feel like I'm going to sound like someone who's trying to just exaggerate, but I don't think I can exaggerate. It's something like seven times out of 10, an idea for a story, the thing I'm trying to say with the essay, it just appears on the walk. And if I don't go for the walk, it won't mm. appear. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. Like if I can't go for a while, it's going to be, it's gonna, I'm going to have an issue with writing. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's other activities that are similar. Like, you know, maybe mm. there's probably other examples that people can think of, but yeah, all of these kind of really integrate into the process of then sitting down and actually expressing some unique perspective mm -hmm. that you have arrived on because you gave yourself the space to figure out how you even feel about anything, mm. you know, because I remember I saw a tweet from, um, I think it was Andy Matushik. He's this kind of researcher and he's a programmer before, and he's famous for publishing Andy's notes, which was the first like digital garden notes. Anyway, he just tweeted offhand. He's like, sometimes I feel like I can't even hear myself thinking and I don't even know what I think about things. And I was like, this is, seems like a very, just sort of like casual tweet, but it's just like one of the most profound things I've read in a long time. It's basically like, if you ask yourself, 
for the things that you consume, information that you consume, do you give yourself the space to even process, let's forget process it, decide how you even feel about it. Like you go so quickly, the TikTok or the Twitter or whatever it is from one thing to another, you don't have the space to know how you feel about it, your personal feelings about anything. So the only thing you can do is consume other people's perspective on something. And then maybe you can share that and be like, I read this thing, which was cool about this person that said that thing. And it's like, yeah, that curation is an important part of it. We all share. I just regurgitate Gilbert quotes all the time, but it's because I had to take the time to actually figure out why and how they apply to me. Like when you share references, it's in context. So you kind of need the lens to be able to see those things about yourself. And then you need to practice so that you can capture on a regular basis, privately journaling. I, you know, the fact that it's private, I think is important because then I can really put what I really actually think. And then separately I can write and it comes from fruition. I don't, by the way, take any of my journals and then turn them into posts. I just, absolutely. it's just like, get that stuff out and become sort of used to that process. And then your brain sort of starts to understand. It's like, okay, so I'm going to have some time to process this. I will do that. And then we're going to think about how we feel about this. We will do that. And then later we're going to try and work on the problem, which is to make sense of or synthesize it in some way so you can relate and share with others. Because that's often the hard Mm. part too, right? Like it's with conversations like this that, thinking about this and you're trying to say it but going back to the first thing we talked about you can't just say hey I thought about it and you know that blue thing I think that they're really important and then you're like what blue thing yeah you're like I don't know what you're talking about secretly you're saying does he mean green Mm. right like because again you've got to go back to that if you took everything in your own language and your own models in your terms it's very difficult to Mm. explain it to someone so that's the process of balancing the the solitude with the society like Mm. you have to kind of keep going back and forth in between the two Mm. to stay relevant and can that another thing that's what gilbert talks about she's like if you're just by yourself in your little hole thinking about things, reflecting about things and writing about them, then it's like she draws a little path. It's, or not she, but somebody else who was commenting about it. It's like a path to delusion. That's what delusion actually is, is you're completely disconnected from all reality of society's perception sure. you're just on your own. But that's why I think mindfulness as the first step with the meditation is so interesting because in mindfulness, you basically have to be or become used to facing reality. Yeah. It's away from denial and into reality. And I think that's why it's so hard to do because whether it's the external circumstances, our reaction to them or our inner narrative around our lives can be really difficult to bear. But if you start from that point and you're constantly in movement and having experiences. Right. What I heard you say as well that I thought was so interesting and so important is that you discovered the felt sense of a specific kind of connection with reality, which connects back again to that quote from that passage from Will Storer's book, 
which I'm totally going to buy, by the way, um, <laughs> because it's from that felt sense that you're able to sort of reconnect over and over again. But I'm so grateful that you, well, I'm grateful that I pulled out that thread, but you, it was important in that post of yours. I can't remember what it was called, but you explained how all these three things combined right. made it impossible for you to ignore the external reality when you no longer wanted to be in a job that was draining you of your energy. Right. And you said, you even said you were gaslighting yourself, but you couldn't until the evidence, by the time that the evidence was piled up in your journals, it was staring back right at you. Yeah. That was powerful. Thanks. I'm glad that that, I mean, it's good to be reminded of that. I think that's what can happen is that if you are never paying attention and noticing these things, then it's easy to just keep consuming more and more and more because then you don't have to face them. Um, when you have these practices, like, honestly, it's like, I'm so sick of talking of quote unquote, talking about this, like with myself, like, uh, we don't like this. What are we going to do about it? Nothing. Okay. Next day. Oh, we really don't like this. What are we going to do about it? Nothing. It's like, this is exhausting. At the end of the day, you kind of are just like, why, why do we do this? Why are we doing this to ourselves? Like, don't we deserve better? And those types of questions start to come up. And like you said, they're hard to, they're hard to ignore when you have those practices. And so I, it's kind of sad, but you kind of have really two outcomes. One is you kind of are like, okay, all right. Okay. I think we need to do something about this. And the other is I'm tired of this mute. Right. And you just sort of yeah. disconnect from it. And both of those are mechanisms to deal with that discomfort. Mm. Just one of them is sort of, you know, long-term um, restorative or, or progressive in that way. And the other is more kind of a short term. And, yeah. and honestly, you actually need both at different times. Yeah. I, I read something the other day. It's like, you know, you are not a self-care project that constantly has to be improving yourself and bettering yourself and doing all the meditating and the journaling and the reading and the shadow work. Like it's okay to you know, take a break and just relax and not be moving forward. Just stay alive for a little while, you know, cause, cause you can yeah, get yeah, yeah. <laughs> on the other extreme as well. Right. You can, totally. you can be like, I have to do that. I have to work on myself. I have to do this. I'm not good enough. And then it becomes negative self-talk, which makes you feel worse and so on and so forth. So <laughs> it's always a balance. It's always a balance, but it's also remembering that we're here to live a life. So that's I think right. if it's not in service of how you are making you feel better, then that's right. Again, Liz Gilbert was joking. Like sometimes she doesn't, she just wants to have a sandwich. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. about having a sandwich. Like, and it, she just repeated it three or four times. And I was like, yeah, I get you, you know, enough self-awareness for today. Thank you. Let's move exactly. on to something else. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. I've had you on the line for almost two hours. So wow. I'm, I know. And I could keep talking to you for probably another two hours. So we may <laughs> have to do this again another time. I'm so totally I can access more of the questions I had prepared for you. But I'd like to ask you a few closing questions for today, if that's all right. Sure. Before we do that, is there anything else that you'd like to share? 
No, I think I'd love if folks who resonate with some of what we talked about and some of the stuff I shared, subscribe to my newsletter, Quick Brown Fox. That's kind of like my center, my home. And, you know, you'll see updates about the book and, and other projects I'm working on there. Yeah, that's it. So here are some of my favorite questions. Don't think too hard, just to go with the flow. The first one being, what is your favorite word? But a word that you could tattoo on yourself, at least for a while, live with. Mm, floof. I like the sound of the word floof. And right now, like I have one big floof that's been very well behaved over there. And Aww, there's another floof. Floofs are like anytime I'm like really upset, I just look at the floof and it's like, yeah, you know what? Everything's fine. Like just... Look to the floof for all contentment. Like their entire lifestyle is a perfect example. They're like, <laughs> oh, life's difficult. I'm asleep. <laughs> like, like, like they forgive quickly. They don't, rem- they, don't, yeah. they, don't they don't like stress about Pat. Like they're a perfect example. So yeah, they literally a- dust themselves off and sh- shake it off immediately. It's actually, it's some, I almost like, I won't say it brought me to tears, but I was just like, there was something we had, I moved or, mistakenly kicked the, you know, just as I was walking and the cat was like, and immediately it was already just playing with me. And it was like, like that. And I was like, my God, like, imagine if I could just be like, yeah, it happened. Anyways, I've got food to eat and floofing to do, you know? So like, (laughs) (laughs) they're very inspirational. Yeah. Thank you. I needed that today. What does connection mean to you? I think of energy, energy exchange. I often seek out connection because that's really when I get my most energy. At the same time, there's some people that are very, sort of they fill me with energy and there's others that I can feel like there was a lot of energy that I put in and then I just feel drained at the end. And I've really started to pay close attention to what kinds of connections I have in my life. And I'm lucky that, you know, writing online, it connects me with people like you that are very generous and energy giving. And um, because I think that's what we need. That's what we're here for. You know, we're here to be around other people. And yeah, that's what comes to mind. Thanks. What song best represents you? Oh, that's a tough one. Hmm. Oh, there's too many. No, this is hard. This is a really hard one. I mean, I guess what I would say is there's a track called Piano by, his name is Eric Prids, but he goes by Prida. And I just love it. I love all his music, but it was such a energetic, yet also it has this sort of like piano art, sort of artistic, almost Beethoven-y style to it. And I just love how he sort of meshes these two worlds of like beauty, but also just pure raw energy to, to fill people up with joy and, and kind of laughter. It sounds amazing. It's a song that almost has been overplayed, like as in he plays it every time and still somehow... I will go nuts to that song every time. And it's one of my favorites to, to mix. I'll send it to you. Oh, uh, please. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds they, amazing. Yeah. I love that track. It's spelled kind of strangely too. So I'll have to send it to you. But, okay. Uh, yeah. I'll put it in the show notes as well. Oh, and I've compiled 
a Spotify playlist for every time that someone answered that question, which oh, is not every time. Cool. Yeah, I know. I'll but send that to you. Again. I'm going to have a good edition. Yeah, Thanks. it's very eclectic and it's really lovely. What is the sweetest thing that's ever happened to you? Uh, mm, that's tough. I don't know if I can think of my whole life, but I will say the arrival of my cats into, into my wife and I's life is definitely like there is a moment where we brought them home and there's two of them. And what they told us was they'll be hesitant and very scared and they'll stay in their cages mostly for the entire you know first few days. So just be very careful with them and all that. And we brought them home and I opened it up and Mango, she just walked straight out and sat on my lap immediately. <laughs> first time she remember me. And then the other one came and kind of did the same. And I was, I was just sitting there on the floor in the bathroom, like sitting cross-legged with cats, two new cats on my lap. And I was just like, this is going to be beginning of something really wonderful. And it's literally been just like, I will never stop talking about these cats. Like they're just pure sources of joy, you know. I totally get you. I have to tell you, a couple of days ago, I was doing sun salutations, which is a morning routine. Lala, the female kitten, was next to me. And twice she went on her back paws and she made herself big. And Oh my <laughs> God. She was imitating me. I was like, oh my God, that's incredible. Maybe they seem to with yoga. Like whenever my wife's doing yoga, Mango likes to go under the bridge poses and then, mm. and then imitate the child's pose sometimes. Like it, it's incredible. They really like that. Mm. Fascinating. We've talked about a lot of your experiences and gifts, but what is a secret superpower that you have? A secret superpower? Um, superpower? I don't know. I feel like at this time I've exposed <laughs> most of them. <laughs> um, yeah, I will say that I am a pretty, I won't say phenomenal, but I would say at my peak, I was one of the best Pangra dancers that I knew. It's a style of Indian dancing. So I would do it a lot, like at clubs, at parties. And this became extended into like performances that we would do at weddings. And my brother and I would start emceeing. And so we would do skits. And it got to this point where we would do this for family weddings. People would come up to us afterward and they would ask me for my card because they thought I was a paid, like, no like way. person who shows up and does productions for the wedding. Wow. Because we would do like accents and anything like that. So my secret superpower is doing funny accents and skits and dances uh, that would be fun to do again someday. But it's it's been a while. Like one of the videos is out there that has actually gotten a lot of views, but I'm not going to say. So Oh, can you send it to me? Just to me. I, I, will, send it, I will send it just to you. And and any listener who's very, very, very keen, you, you can find <laughs> it. Very strange, funny performances. That's awesome. And... That will bring us to my last question. What brings you happiness? I mean, I feel like there's a lot of things that bring me happiness right now, but um, probably the biggest one is the thing I, I think I quickly mentioned it in the morning, but we recently moved in the middle of the pandemic to a different place where we actually have a backyard now. And I haven't had a backyard uh, as, an, as an adult person. I think when we were, you know, when I was a kid, we kind of did, but I didn't really use it. But there's a tree, 
a big, big tree and it has a lot of birds and different animals in it. So what I've been doing these mornings is I just go and sit and kind of listen to the sort of the leaves rustling and watch the birds for a bit. And I'll read one of the many old books of folklore and fables and things like that that I've been getting. And I find that when I read these stories in that place, I feel like I believe them and, and sort of the, the world and the feeling of them becomes more real than if I was like inside reading in a Kindle or something like that. And so occasionally I'll read it and I'll like, I get so excited about them that sometimes like there might be one I'll tell you after this or, or, or cause I know we've gone long, but I get so excited. I just want to tell people about these stories because these really old stories that I just think it's like society telling us all these things and they're available in all these books and we're sort of forgetting them or, or not being able to hear them. But there's moments where I'm reading them and I just put the book down and I'll just be looking out and kind of smiling. And it's a very nice, happy moment. And it helps me feel balanced for, you know, no matter what happens the rest of the day. That sounds really wonderful. And now I want to give you other books. Because <laughs> I want to feed into your, yeah, I want to feed that moment that you're having every day. Perfect. That's yeah, I mean, I wonderful. feel really lucky and privileged to have the ability to do that. And I feel mm. like there's just so many great books and they're just like and what I really love to do honestly is like these some of these collections they'll have like 30 or 50 stories and most of them are kind of like eh. and then there'll be one story that's just like this is one of the greatest stories I've ever heard and I just want to tell everyone about it there's definitely a few that I would love to share and this is something that I want to do with that that mm. fables newsletter I mentioned. I would love to not just write my own, but bring some of the ones that have been forgotten, like these really old stories and bring them into the world. So I like that practice because it feeds what, like you said, try, what, mm. what are we trying to do? What are we trying to like live and be? Oh, I can be part of this. I can, I can participate in this thing that's happening where stories are being told and have been told. And I'm, and I'm sort of playing some part in that maybe. Yeah. Oh. Beautiful. Salman, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Thank it's you. such a pleasure so to talk to you and to hear about all of the things you do and to discover more about who you are. And every time I read anything or watch your videos as well, which are really lovely. Oh, thanks. Um, I, yeah, I feel, um, feel very connected and thankful for having discovered you and for the work that you put out into the world. For anybody who wants to connect, where can they find you? You can go to my website, salman.io. That's kind of a good overall, has all my stuff there. I'm on Twitter at Dare Durant. And my newsletter is just letter.salman.io. Yeah, check out my newsletter. That's like the best way to stay apprised of everything Salman. And I just wanted to say thank you. I really appreciate the thoughtfulness and the sort of dedication to even thinking about what kind of questions you wanted to ask, it's clear how much you care and it shows up in, in every interaction I have with you and grateful that I'm been able to participate here today and, and chat with you and, and have, have the fun we've had. Thank you so much. The kitten almost came out. I was about to grab her and she went, no, I'm going back. <laughs> so she's actually sleeping behind you right yeah, now. Yeah, Mega was cute. fast asleep there. I, I have to give her kudos. She did very well. There was no disturbance. She's now in, in what we call shrimp <laughs> mode. You know I, mean? I, I love just, shrimp mode. It's the shrimp best. Mode. 
their head is upside down. It doesn't make any sense anatomically with their cats. So no rules apply. (laughs) Awesome. Have a wonderful weekend. And I'm looking forward to connecting with you again really soon. Likewise. Thanks, Anne. Take care. Thanks again to Salman for being my guest on the show today. As always, you can find the relevant links of what we talked about in the show notes. So friends and listeners, thanks again for joining me. If you'd like to hear more, you can subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice. And if you want to connect, you can get in touch with me at Anvi on Twitter or Anne Militala on LinkedIn and at underscore out of the clouds on Instagram, where I also share daily musings about mindfulness. You can find all episodes of the podcast and more on annevmulitano.com. And to get regular news in your inbox, I also invite you to sign up to my monthly newsletter. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to Out of the Clouds. I hope you'll join me again next time. Until then, be well, be safe, and take care.